Hello friends, thanks for tuning in to the League of Josh podcast. Today I talk with Dr. Michael Mehta. Michael is one of my sociology profs this semester and we talk a lot about renewable resource in this episode. He is the CEO of a company called Sweet Spot Solar and it's an awesome way to look into local solar. Look it up and make a difference in terms of renewable energy. Hope you guys enjoy the episode. So as, as energy is becoming more and more of an issue, uh, your goal is to promote solar energy, and you do that in some really, really cool ways. Do you want to go over that a little bit? Sure. So, you know, solar power is one of the uh, underrated energy systems that we have available uh, on, on this planet. Every day in one hour, we get enough sun power to basically power all of humanity for a year. So there's a tremendous amount of uh, power that's ba- you know, not being exploited, not being used. And uh, at the same time, uh, all around the world, about a million solar panels are being installed each and every day. So this is a really big field, and there's a lot going on. A million, really? Yeah, a million solar panels a day. Uh, China is actually the world's leader pretty much in this technology. Uh, Years ago, the government of China spent billions of dollars upgrading their equipment and labs and manufacturing facilities for solar modules. And it really put a scare into the rest of the world because they were able to start making things at a lot lower price and higher quality. And that pushed really the revolution in solar technology. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really interesting because China is able to produce a lot now. They're almost the main producer in the majority of more small-scale stuff and even large-scale stuff. So that's interesting that solar is a mean of like, but solar is part of that. Like, I didn't know that energy was a huge, um, sorry, words. <laughs> uh, I didn't know that energy was a huge issue with that, but that's super interesting. Well, China has some serious uh, issues like air quality that they've been trying to deal with. And uh, they have uh, pretty much hundreds of thousands of people every year dying from air pollution from vehicles and coal plants and everything else. So they have uh, a lot of pressure as a rapidly developing country, um, probably one of the fastest growing economies still in the world, right. to improve the quality of life for their people. So they're also the leaders in electric vehicles. They sell more electric vehicles pretty much than every other country combined every year. Holy. Wow. So that's, that's quite unbelievable. Yeah, it it, it is amazing, uh, and um, because of that, other countries like India mm-hmm. have have also moved into solar. Uh, the thing about solar that's different from a lot of energy systems is that it's something that everyday people could put on the rooftop of their homes. Uh, you can't easily install a wind turbine in most cases on a property or a hydro project or a nuclear plant or anything like that. But you know, if you're a poor villager, say in rural part of India you may be able with subsidies and other programs to put a small solar panel on your roof without having to be connected to the grid, you know, without all that other infrastructure. And that's why these technologies are taking off because they're small, scalable, and increasingly inexpensive. Right. And India is also doing, I forget which village it was, but they were, they're cooking with solar energy and feeding tens of thousands of people. A different kind of solar energy. So um, just so people are are clear on the the two general types of solar energy. Uh, The first that I'm referring to mostly today is uh, solar photovoltaic technology. These are the, you know, usually black or bluish kind of panels that you see on a roof. They're uh, fairly thin. They're low profile. Um, They are a solid state technology made primarily with silicon and a couple of other uh, chemicals like boron. And what they do is they produce electricity. 
The other kind of solar technology which people cook with and do other things with, including boiling water and the like, is something called solar thermal energy. And they often work through a concentration of sunlight. So they're not an electronic process like a solar photovoltaic module. And you brought out your your dish and end up burning through a pan. Yes, yeah, so I, sh- I showed uh, uh, the class a uh, uh, an illustration of a solar cooker. I brought one in as well, a smaller one, but I have this really large solar thermal cooker. It's uh, a meter and a half across. It uh, basically is an old satellite dish with a highly reflective tin tape on it. And uh, at the focal point, taking advantage of the principles of a parabola, this uh, dish will get up to about 900 Fahrenheit. So the first time I used it, I had no idea it was that powerful and that hot. And I, I left a Teflon pan on the, on the surface and went inside to, to grab the food. And I came out and uh, the Teflon pan was vaporizing. You were, you, you discussed in class um, using, the thermal, using the thermal energy to also heat water and having a more sustainable house in that way while also utilizing the electricity that, therm- that solar power can produce, but also the thermal aspect of it. There's three things that people can do to improve the efficiency of their home if that's uh, what they want to do. The first, of course, the low-hanging fruit is to knock off some of your electricity consumption. You know, if you think about it, you've got uh, refrigerators running 24 hours a day, uh, and they're fairly efficient, the newer ones. Uh, You've got lighting. You may use electronics, TVs, and, of course, with more electronics in the household every day, we've got more and more electricity consumption. So uh, even a very small solar photovoltaic array of say five solar panels, which might cost uh, the client uh, around $5,000 installed with everything, including all the electronics, uh, can knock off a lot of that. And then of course, you've got the, the hot water side of the equation. And a lot of people are using solar thermal technologies, including things like uh, evacuated tubes uh, to he- preheat their water so that even if they have to use gas or electricity for the the final heating stage to get it up to temperature for use. It's pretty much already almost there. So it's just a little step extra. And then the third really important thing to do is to build better quality homes, uh, so-called passive homes, homes that don't leak a lot of uh, heat and don't require a lot of air conditioning load. And, you know, that's typically done with better insulation and other technologies. Very cool. How do you you think hydro is coming along with solar? Because I know in Quebec they just had to... did a ton of hydro stuff, and then they ended up having the highest income for provinces in this past year. Well, BC Hydro has, for more than a decade, had a program in the province called net metering. And net metering allows people with solar, but also wind, small micro hydro, and other things to connect to the grid. Um, Oftentimes, you don't even need batteries, so it's a straight, what we call grid-tie connection, and to uh, power their homes with that energy and to create a a rolling credit through the smart meter of any excess energy that uh, you might produce so that you can draw on that later on in the winter. So we've been allowing people to do that for more than a decade. It's a really seamless, easy process, and it's a great way for people to get into solar. Jeez. So what do you think the most efficient way is to build a home in trying to include hydro, solar, wind? Do you think there's a there's a method that would enable you to use all three of those or even more things that you utilize the environment around you and not just burning coal and fossil fuels? It depends on your location. So if you were um, on a high cliff, say overlooking a valley or an ocean or a lake or something like that, and you had good quality wind that was fairly consistent, 
wind would be a reasonable uh, option for you. Solar would also probably work in that situation. Hydro is a little harder, especially micro hydro. The, you have to kind of be in the right location with enough of a, a fall of water uh, in order to create enough energy with uh, you know, the force of gravity. So there are very few people that can exploit hydro individually. The, the real low-hanging fruit, the most cost-effective and most reliable is solar photovoltaic by a mile. Mm-hmm. Cool. How... How did you start to get into this very progressive, environmentally progressive lifestyle? I know that you, like vegetarian. I'm not sure if you're vegan, but uh, no vegetarian. Yeah, I tried veganism, but it was it was tough. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. It's it is very very tough. Um, I've never tried it, but it just seems. It. I, I really like honey, and I think that that's something that doesn't really impact the animal negatively. So I think that there are some things that veganism is a little bit skewed on. But um, how did you how did you start your lifestyle in or how did you start the progress- environmentally progressive lifestyle? Sorry, here, one second. I'm just going to check. Let me this I lost a complete episode with Sam, and it killed me because it was really, really good, and I'm already enjoying this a lot. Okay, it looks good. Sorry. Good. Well, like a lot of people who um, study environmental issues and teach about environmental issues, um, I, I, I became quite aware early on in my life that we have um, a significant impact on ecosystems and that um, it didn't happen overnight that a lot of our impacts are slow and progressive and, you know, just involve little daily routines that we, we don't think about or are very conscious about. Uh, and it became apparent to me that um, you could do the opposite. You could actually start to slowly but inexorably make a small improvement and it would start to build up. Small things count for a lot when it comes to the environment. So um, when I built my first house, uh, which was a house out on Gabriel Island off uh, Nanaimo, it's one of the small Gulf islands, I had a chance to try to put some of my thinking into practice. And it happened kind of by accident, kind of by um, being forced to do it, because the the island out there doesn't have uh, any natural gas for heating purposes. Um, Our lot doesn't have any water. uh, There's no well potential. So I had to think about and carefully plan a few things like rainwater collection off the roof into large storage cisterns and sterilization and purification to drink that water. And I also thought, well, uh, it'd be great if I could generate most, if not all, of my own electricity. So I put solar on the roof, eventually expanded it. Now there are 23 solar modules on the roof and uh, two wind turbines uh, on the property as well. And uh, those modules and wind turbines almost make me neutral. Uh, I don't buy very much electricity from BC Hydro. Uh, At one point I was buying none, but then I added an electric car into the mix, which uses the electricity from my system. Mm -hmm. Uh, So now I'm using a little bit more. So I'm thinking of adding maybe another 10 modules this year or next year, uh, and then I'll be back to neutral. How many, depending on square footage of the house, how many modules can you add onto a home and how will that impact the reduction of electricity? Depends on the home. It depends on the location. It depends on how much uh, sun is hitting that roof. If it's a roof mount, uh, we can also do ground mounts and other things too. But let's say that you were looking at um, a smaller 12 or 1300 square foot bungalow uh, and two people were living in that bungalow and they were heating the home maybe with uh, say natural gas. So their electricity consumption would be reasonable compared to heating it with electricity. Uh, in that s- situation, most of those people, if the roof was facing the right way and the right angles, 
could get away between 10 and 15 solar modules on the roof to be completely neutral and not pay a power bill for at least 30 years or more. Wow. Yeah. How, I've heard some numbers on, I've heard around 10 years, but how long it takes to actually pay off solar panels? Mm-hmm. Is, that, is that around right, 10 it, years? It's about right. It's not the only way to um, think about the finances of solar. It's actually mm-hmm. my least preferred way because uh, a lot of people, when they say, oh, it takes 10 or 12 years to pay back the panels, uh, start to think of um, all kinds of reasons why that won't work for them. Oh, I may not be in the house in 10 yeah, or 12 10 years, years and time. so on, or yeah. I may not be alive, which is sometimes what I hear from older clients. Um, what uh, you really need to think about is how solar will actually reduce your bill immediately. So if you were paying you know, $100 a month in electricity and you had a solar roof on your, your, your roof that you spent uh, $12,000 on, you're no longer paying that $100 a month and you won't be. So it's uh, the payback, even though the, you know, the total return on the investment might take 10 to 12 years, the flow of uh, savings is instantaneous. Mm-hmm. So people just need to think about it a little differently. It's the only thing that people can do to their home that actually makes an income. I mean, if you put money in kitchen renovations or bathroom renovations, it looks great. And actually, I uh, often say that the granite countertops killed the solar industry because a lot of people would prefer to you know, spend money on their, ca- their countertops than they would on their roof. Yeah. Um, but those things don't produce an income. They don't save you any money in your operating costs. You may get, if you're lucky, uh, 30 to 40% back when you sell the house by you know, having an enhanced kitchen or bathroom in terms of resale value. But all the studies that are coming out now, especially in the States and California, less so in Canada because we're just not there yet with the number of solar arrays, show that about 100% of the investment in solar is repaid when you sell the house back. Really? Wow. Yeah. Because, you know, imagine this. You've got two homes side by side in a city, and uh, they're both uh, almost the same price. Maybe the one with the solar costs $10,000 more, mm-hmm. but one of them is costing you several thousand a year to operate with uh, electricity, and the other costs nothing. There's a premium that people are willing to pay for that. Yeah, wow. Very, very cool. Yeah. That's crazy. That blows my mind. Yeah. And it's easy. Uh, you know, what a lot of people uh, mistakenly think is that this is a complicated thing. Um, I hear people say, oh, do I got to rewire my house or something like that? You don't. So most solar arrays that are on the ground or on the roof simply have a, a, a wire coming in. But it's usually three or four wires, depending on what we're doing. Mm-hmm. all bundled together, going directly into their breaker box. And uh, that's what energizes their entire house. Um, there's no batteries required unless you want them. Usually that's only a good thing if you're, say, in a remote location and you've got a lot of power outages. But for the vast majority of people, it's just uh, everything is on the roof. There's nothing inside the house. It just goes into the breaker box and there's no other equipment involved and, and minimal cost now. Right. And are yeah. you able to sell the electricity that you develop that you don't use back to the government? You're only allowed in British Columbia now, they just changed it a year ago, mm-hmm. to um, make as much energy as you use. So the important thing is to size the solar array so that it's right up or cl- as close as you can get to that, uh, that limit. Um, they, they don't want to pay you back anything. At, at this point, they currently will mm-hmm. for systems that have been grandfathered in. They will pay you 9.99 cents per kilowatt hour for anything extra. Yeah. But for new systems, they uh, want you to size it uh, to be no larger than your consumption. Why do you think they made that change? 
I think a lot of it has to do with um, the politics and the economics of the uh, Site C project because uh, uh, BC Hydro is already in a, a net energy surplus situation. We make more than we need, mm-hmm. and we have uh, for at least a decade. And um, unfortunately, the utility companies like BC Hydro tend to do a lot of their modeling for future growth based upon you know a certain projected increase every year of 3% or 5% or 6% or whatever it happens to be. But really what's happening is people's electricity consumption is declining in BC, not going up. So right. they have uh, some challenges with having too much supply. Huh. That's very interesting. Yeah. And, and the reason why they're declining, uh, which is fascinating, I think, is, well, there's a few things. One is uh, we're an aging population. Mm. So in, in the province, uh, older people generally use less electricity, especially if they don't have families living in the homes. Right. The second thing is that people are aware of uh, you know the need to conserve. They turn lights off and they're not running you know pumps and things like that all the time and they don't need to. Mm-hmm. So um, they're conscious of how much it costs and the footprint that they're leaving behind. So they're cutting back. And then the third really important thing is technology is just a lot more efficient. I mean, um, if you look at a refrigerator from 20 years ago, if you happen to have one, I would get rid of it. They, I'm sure they, these are <laughs> they, probably old here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, they might be using two to three hundred, maybe four hundred watts per hour. And in a, in a, in a day, if they're using four hundred watts an hour, that's ten kilowatts of electricity, which is about a dollar fifty a day of operating when you throw taxes and everything into the mix. The newer refrigerators might be using eighty watts per day. Or, you know, somewhere in the range of um, two kilowatts or 25 cents yeah. a day. So because of all of these things, um, our power has not grown or, you know, increased. Uh, but if you add Site C, this big hydro project, into the mix, I think they're really worried about what it's going to do to the cost of energy. And they're going to have to sell a lot of that excess electricity through the international market to Alberta and to the U.S. at a loss. Mm-hmm. How how would that how would they go about doing that selling selling electricity internationally? Well, every utility company, big utility company, is connected through um, a grid system that is you know beyond their own borders, and there are um, agencies or organizations that oversee the management of those grids. So, for example, if California has a a brownout, let's say one of the nuclear plants goes down, or their hydro, hydro plants aren't working like they haven't been for a long time mm-hmm. because of drought conditions they have um, the ability to buy electricity from other utility operators around the network that are connected together on what's called the spot market. So they're able to set a price for electricity at that wholesale market and buy it right then and there. And that electricity is diverted to those provinces or states. So that's how we keep our systems kind of working integrated together, more robust to meet the needs when things change. Wow. Jeez, that's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. It is. How how did you start your solar project? I read a little bit about it on the website, but I wanted I want to hear from you. Right. So I started off originally in the late '80s and early '90s um, studying nuclear power plants mm-hmm. and nuclear power plant safety. And at first, I was really supportive of that technology. I thought it was the right thing to do. But as I spent a decade looking at it and wrote a book about it, I became very concerned. To be quite frank. I think the technology has promise, but I don't believe that we're mature enough as a species to handle it. What do you mean by that? In terms of the nuclear proliferation and the risks of runaway nuclear arms races and weapons, you can't separate the nuclear energy industry for electricity production from the weapons sector. 
they are right. in you know connected in so many ways. So yeah. I just don't think we're mature enough as a species to handle that. So I moved from nuclear energy um, when I moved to Saskatchewan originally, and I was fortunate enough to be appointed to the board of um, their provincial utility company, SAS Power. Uh, SAS Power is like BC Hydro. It's the provincial utility for Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. And got to work with the, the board and the, the, the executive and all the staff, mostly at first moving towards wind power and uh, trying to uh, enhance their, their hydro to move them away from coal. They're mm-hmm. still very much a coal-dependent province, just like Alberta. Right. And then when I moved out to BC, um, I became really interested in solar because uh, I had heard that solar had you know, dropped in price so dramatically that it had gone down like 80% in the last few years. And I was building that house that I mentioned on Gabriel Island, and I wanted to do solar on it. And I contacted some small local companies nearby, and the prices they were quoting for small solar arrays were outrageous. They were unaffordable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was looking just at you know five solar panels, just enough to offset maybe ten percent of my electricity at that time, because my house was heated by electric and everything else. And uh, it was somewhere in the range of six, seven, or seven thousand dollars. And I thought, oh, this is crazy for five solar panels. So I went on to eBay. And I happened to just come across some sellers that were selling stuff, bought some solar panels and all the electronics, and with some friends there, learned how to hook it up myself and got it running for about $2,000. Wow. Yeah. So uh, we decided, the group that I was working with on that at my house, to create a nonprofit. And for two or three years, we ran a nonprofit where we made available to hundreds of people in British Columbia solar power at uh, cost plus a small donation to the nonprofit. Mm. Uh, I was spending a tremendous amount of time on that work. So eventually I decided to make um, my move away from that to create my own company, Sweet Spot Solar. And now I'm selling and designing solar systems all across British Columbia. Very cool. And how how have you found that that's been successful? It's been up and down. Um, The company's in year three now. And in the first year, we did really well. We had some big projects. Second year, last year, uh, was uh, horrible. Uh, mostly people in the interior um, who were interested in solar just decided not to do it for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Maybe they were frightened about the economy or whatever it happened to be. Uh, and there's often other priorities. Uh, you know, I, I commonly hear from people who want solar that, oh, they've got to replace their truck or they're, they've got to they change their roof counters. or they need granite countertops <laughs> or they want to take the kids to you know Disneyland or something. Right. Solar is a hard sell. Um, this year is looking better, but it's always um, the last priority mm-hmm. for people uh, because you know energy is still relatively inexpensive in British Columbia uh, and people you know are, are fine usually paying a, a bill as long as it's manageable. Um, but they don't think about all the other advantages of doing solar, including, uh, you know, symbolically showing their neighbors and everybody else that we're moving in the direction of sustainability. So it's really kind of um, a contagion theory when, when it comes to things like solar. The more people who have it, the more people who see it, the more people who want it. But if you live in a neighborhood where there are none, uh, it's just not top of mind. So my goal is to try to get that tipped in the other direction. That is a really good point that you make, that I think there is a tipping point, that typically if I go for a walk through some neighborhoods, there'll be all solar, and then it'll either, it's a, it's a really, it really looks like an all or none thing, but I'm sure that there is a, a tipping point threshold that 
we're slowly moving towards. There is, and there's some other strange things that are happening. Uh, one of the other things I've observed is that people with money, people with lots of wealth or high incomes, are generally not interested in solar or electric cars or many environmental things, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. Um, I'm not sure exactly why. I can speculate on that, which I won't right now. Uh, but it's mostly the middle classes and the working class people that are spending their money on things like solar to make a difference for future generations. And I find that fascinating. Very cool. Yeah. It seems like a lot of people that I talk to within my generation are a lot more concerned with solar energy and electric energy. So it seems like a little bit of a generational thing as well as a, an economic disparity. It is. Un- unfortunately, a lot of younger people aren't able to do that because they may right. not own their own homes or they, they've got a lot of debt. Yeah. But you're right. Their, their interest is there. Um, most of my clients, or at least the people that contact me initially, are women. So women tend to have um, a much greater interest in exploring solar than do men. Uh, I think it, a lot of it might have to do with their uh, concerns about the environment and um, their fascination with this technology. And I think some of that has to do with um, the fact that you know, solar is, is really nothing more than an appliance, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you think of it as you know, this high-tech piece of equipment, um, then it's kind of got this mystical power and nobody knows how it works and they don't know how reliable it is and everything else when it's super reliable. Mm-hmm. But when you start to think about it as a, a, you know, an appliance, and this is one of the reasons why some of the biggest solar companies in the world are appliance manufacturers, by the way, like LG, right. then it starts to become more commonplace and it starts to become easier to understand. Hmm. Yeah, that is very interesting, just taking a perspective change on that and then that kind of flips the switch. Exactly. Very, very cool. Yeah. What do you think the step is for more prairie regions to start moving in the direction of sustainable energy? Many prairie regions uh, are doing that. Alberta is actually a leader in solar and wind. A lot of people don't think of them that way because of their oil and fossil fuel dominance. Mm -hmm. But a lot of their communities are moving towards solar very rapidly. And Saskatchewan is doing the same thing. Um, BC is probably the most behind when it comes to renewable energy. And I believe a lot of it has to do, again, with uh, the nature of our utilities being a crown corporation like BC Hydro, Mm -hmm. but more specifically the fact that even though BC Hydro makes it relatively easy with net metering, they don't really support solar for people. There are no rebates. There are no incentives. There are no loan programs for people who want to buy solar from the utility companies, uh, whereas most other jurisdictions are doing that. So BC Hydro is kind of trapped because even in their name, it tells you what they're focused on, yeah. right? Uh, so I, I think that we, we need a, a new crown corporation that focuses specifically on renewable energy and that works with people like you and I to enable our transition to a renewable economy, not to see it as comp- competition or a threat. Mm-hmm. How do you think solar would work in places like the lower mainland that don't receive as much sunshine during five months of the year? Interestingly enough, when you look at what are called sunshine hours, which is a calculation of the number of hours of sunshine, direct sunshine, that a city or region receives annually, places like Vancouver or even Vancouver Island that we typically think of as the the wet coast Mm -hmm. uh, have more sunshine hours than solar powerhouses like Germany. So if Germany can make it work with, you know, on average in most cities there of 1,500 or 1,400 sunshine hours per year, Vancouver with between 1,600 and 1,700 
can definitely make it work. It's a matter of political will. It's a matter of setting the agenda and supporting these things. Right. I know that when Germany initially started, that they they had a little bit of issues getting it up and started because they were they had to turn on their coal at night, which ended up being a lot more inefficient and it, it was it was a huge burden for them because they started that way. But did, so they followed through then, and they end up getting primarily um, solar energy. One of the things that's happening with solar energy is it's also ushering in a revolution in storage. Mm-hmm. And most people, when they think of energy storage, say at the residential level or even small scale, community scale, uh, think of batteries, and that's a, a good approach. And of course, Tesla is leading the way with uh, their their power walls and their even larger battery systems. So they're doing this all over the world, Hawaii, for example, to provide backup energy for all the solar for operation at night. But there are other ways to store uh, energy other than batteries. Uh, so for instance, Toronto Hydro, um, in the city of Toronto, it's a, a small utility company, it's part of their, their system, uh, has been uh, injecting compressed air into a bladder or balloon type system under Lake Ontario using renewable energy during the day, like solar or wind or whatever they happen to have, excess energy, mm-hmm. to fill these bladders under pressure at the bottom of Lake Ontario up, massive bladders. And uh, at night or when they need that extra energy, they can release that compressed air to spin a turbine to create electricity. So it's not just batteries. You can do storage like wow. that. Uh, you can do it underground. The U.S. Uh, uh, National Research Council uh, has been exploring for years underground compressed air storage using renewables as well for this, using the same principles. So there's lots of things, including flywheel technology. Look at a Formula One race car. A lot of people don't know that a Formula One race car has this really incredible thing called a flywheel in it that's tightly wound spring, you can think of it that way, mm-hmm. that when uh, they, you, know, you go into a corner and you've, you've got all this amazing energy that's being uh, you know, ca- let off, basically, to slow that vehicle down, if you can capture that and store it in a flywheel, you can use that as they do with Formula One cars, to accelerate out of that corner using that extra stored energy with the motors. So people are creating very large flywheels and similar technologies to store electricity for home and other applications. So it's really, it's opening up a, a, a wide frontier of innovation. Wow, that's absolutely unbelievable. The bladder mm-hmm. thing is really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Are there, do you know of any other things that are not similar to that, obviously, because that's a Oh, relatively obscure idea. Absolutely. So one of the more common things to do is to use renewable energy like solar or wind to pump water up to a higher elevation into a reservoir Mm. to store it during the day and then to let it down and to run small hydro projects during the night, the night to recover that electricity. Very cool. Yeah. You were the lead. I'm not, I I believe you were, you were leading the development of the, um, the solar sidewalk that was developed in that's right. Yeah. So we started the solar sidewalk system two uh, years ago. I applied for a, a grant uh, through the sustainability fund on campus. And we worked with an amazing partner out of uh, Vancouver that connected with us called Solar Earth Technologies. Solar Earth is the pioneer of the solar embedded sidewalk systems. Uh, and they wanted TRU to be the first place in the world to have their technology. There's other examples of similar technology around the world, but it's different. And so what we did with um, the campus was we started off with a small solar sidewalk uh, in front of the daycare center, uh, try to figure out how to install it. Nobody's ever done that. Really interesting to do it on existing sidewalk, having to cut out channels and everything else. Right. And then once we figured that out, we did a, a much larger version called the solar compass 
which you'll find a website for called solarcompass.ca, mm-hmm. which is now right in front of the Arts and Education Building on TRU's campus. And how's that idea progressing? It's evolving. It was. It's still a real challenge because it's an extremely harsh environment to on the ground, dirty to begin with. Right. But also trying to put something on concrete that's fastened and not moving too much onto concrete that's subject to expansion and, and contraction with cold and warm temperatures is a challenge. It's a dynamic environment. So we're putting a, a new generation of modules down this spring, which we think will be um, more suitable for that purpose and stronger and should produce more energy. So it's a living lab. We're going to be using uh, this as a site to constantly refine this, and the company is paying for all of that work. So it's not coming out of our budget or nothing. Uh, they want this to be their lab for their projects. Awesome. That's yeah. very cool. It That's is. Very, very, very progressive stuff. Yeah. And for your, your company, do you do tracing as well? Like sun, like, or sorry, tracking. Do you do sun tracking on rooftops or? We do. Trackers aren't usually placed on rooftops uh, because of the size of them and the fact that um, they've got a, you know, they, they're basically a big sale. Mm-hmm. So um, there are some examples, uh, but they're usually on the ground. Uh, yes, yeah, so we, we've done some really big trackers. We did uh, the biggest one in BC, which is located out in the Black Pines area off uh, West Side Road, way out there. And it is a gorgeous tracker. It's about 10 meters by 10 meters across. And it makes enough energy to power about three average homes. Uh, and it's being used by uh, a farm that has uh, significant energy demand. So a tracker is cool. They're expensive. Like they're mm-hmm. much more expensive than a, a fixed or a static roof array. Right. But they can make about 40% more energy for two reasons. One is they follow the sun throughout the day like a sunflower. Mm-hmm. And throughout the year, they change their angle uh, so that in the wintertime, they're standing almost vertically to catch the sun's energy when the sun's closer to the horizon. And in the summer, when the sun is more overhead, they're uh, flat like a tabletop to capture the sun when it's mostly overhead. So they're like a living system, so to speak. Very cool. So just trying to efficiently capture as much energy as possible. Yeah. And we, we've got an, an adaptation on that that we're now using for trackers and for the things. Um, it's called a bifacial module. And it's the coolest thing. I've got one here on campus if people want to take a look at it in my office. Um, a bifacial module is a double-sided solar module. Most solar modules will make energy just on the top side. So when a photon from the sun hits the active layers of silicon, the two layers in the sil- in the module, it will dislodge an electron that moves between the various la- the two layers, creating an electric current. And that's how you make electricity with a solar module. Mm-hmm. With a bifacial module, you've got a, a live active layer on the back as well. So two things happen. Uh, the sun that passes through that module can bounce off the background material like the ground or snow and make energy on the flip side. Or light coming from other angles on the ground from you know whatever bouncing off windows or whatever it happens to be can also make energy on that flip side to make maybe another 30% more energy. Wow. So it's really cool technology. When yeah. you start to combine these things, it's amazing. So that would be really good to utilize during winter where you're not getting as much sunlight, but because of the, the reflection from the snow and from other surfaces, then it would be almost as efficient? Precisely. You, not quite as efficient because the angle of the sun mm-hmm. is so much lower, right. but you uh, make up a lot of those losses by, by having uh, what's called the albedo effect, this reflectivity or emissivity of the uh, um, wavelengths coming back from the snow, which is really good at bouncing these things back to the back of the module. Yeah, I, snow blindness all the time during the winter, especially yeah. here because it's so, yeah. Exactly. Wow, that's unbelievable. Yeah. 
So we're heading, uh, my team is, and I are heading out to Salmon Arm next week. Mm-hmm. Um, we are um, giving a, a big talk there. So I have, uh, I have an, a wonderful electrician here in, in Kamloops uh, named Amber Catchlin. Amber's, uh, um, actually most of my electricians in solar have been women, believe it or not. So mm-hmm. as I said, women seem to be more interested in this technology. Yeah. Uh, so Amber and I are heading out to give a community talk on um, next Tuesday in Salmon Arm on the 2nd of April. And uh, we're hoping that uh, this will inspire, inspire more people to do solar. It's an amazing field. And I think uh, for a lot of people, they don't realize how big it is. Just recently, in the last few years, um, it was reported that more people are now employed in renewable energy in Canada than the tar sands in Alberta combined. Really? Yeah. So this is how big this is. It's a big opportunity for growth and future employment prospects for people like yourself, too. Mm-hmm. Well, a friend and I were discussing that, that just because fossil fuels are slowly running out and becoming less and less prominent, it's not necessarily a bad thing because companies like Husky aren't necessarily just oil and gas companies, but they're energy companies. And uh, it, it seems as though we're, we're moving towards more of a pivot into renewable energy. And so that's, that's a really, really interesting statistic. Yeah, smart companies know that the future is in renewable energy and electrification. And they know that if they don't want to have too many stranded assets or, you know, go the way of the dinosaurs, they have to invest in these technologies. And they are. And um, we're seeing it all over the world. Um, the real hard part is to just get everyday people to um, change their behavior, to spend a little bit of their money on the technology to really bump start it. If you look at parallels to the cell phone industry, when the cell phone first came out, they were horrible. They were big, clunky. They probably nuked you if you got used them too long. Right. They cost thousands of dollars, and they had no range, and there was no network for them. But look at just how consumer adoption of that technology, rapid adoption, changed it. They became more efficient, smaller, better networks. The price of the phones dropped somewhat. Now they've gone up again, of course, with mm-hmm. all the gadgets in them. And you've got all these wonderful services that you could use. Same thing is happening with renewable energy. The only difference is that we're just missing that massification, that move. Just like with electric cars, the more people that get them, the more people will sell them, the more charging stations we'll have, and the better things will be. And the missing element is just you and I. And that's all it takes. We have, we have all the technology right now for a sustainable green future. Uh, it's just a matter of deploying it. What do you think the most revolutionary step that's coming for solar energy or renewable energy in general? Well, I think that we're going to see um, new solar modules every year that are more and more efficient. We're going to run into some limits with silicon for sure. Um, So other technologies, including nanomaterials, um, may increase that efficiency. Uh, I think most of the change is actually going to occur with the electronics behind the scenes. Uh, the inverters that take the DC energy off the solar and turn it into AC. We'll see them become smaller and more efficient, um, cheaper. They're already getting that way right now quite dramatically with many of the microinverters that we use from companies like Enphase. You're going to see better control systems, better cloud-based energy reporting systems, and everything else. All of those ancillary um, technologies and jobs will flow from this technology. That's why they call this the Renewable Energy Revolution we're not just talking about a piece of technology or an appliance. We're talking about how this all fits together to create more innovation and a better, stronger, greener economy. Right. Because this really does affect everything. It does. Travel or living. 
everything. Everything's affected by solar energy at this point, or renewable energy. Absolutely. Well, even Harbor Air in um, Vancouver Island in Vancouver, this is a small float plane operator, um, wonderfully progressive company. They started about a decade ago providing carbon offsets for people who bought their uh, tickets to fly with them. They had just announced uh, this week that their fleet is migrating to 100% electric airplanes, the first in the world. Really? And how are they going to do that? Uh, same technology that we use in electric cars, battery-based uh, uh, airplanes, float planes, and uh, electric motors, considerably more reliable than, than gasoline, a lot less polluting, a lot less More noise. reliable? Oh, electric motors are significantly more reliable. Really? Yep. Wow. Yeah, they thousands and thousands of duty hours before any, no maintenance is required for an electric motor. They're, they're virtually bulletproof as well. And what, what makes them more reliable than a gas motor? A lot less moving parts and uh, very, very simple processes involving magnets and wires. And um, that's why we use them for all of our energy systems. All coal plants, nuclear plants, hydro plants, wind turbines ultimately rely on you know, some way to move an electric motor. Mm-hmm. A coal plant is nothing more than a big kettle that boils water, that spins an electric motor to create electricity. A nuclear plant's the same thing. A hydro plant's the same thing. A wind turbine's the same thing. These are incredibly reliable, high-efficiency things that are now working their way into cars, airplanes, and the like. Wow. That's unbelievable. Very cool. Yeah. Nice. You want to cut it there? That seems perfect. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, thank you. Okay.